As a representative democracy, it is imperative that citizens remain informed and active in the process of ensuring that we are fairly represented. With the census data having now been released, state governments are now in the process of determining how districts ought to be drawn up. Philosophically, this brings up questions about fairness, justice, and the nature of districts. To help guide me through some of these issues, I am joined by Kansas Appleseed's Caleb Smith. Kansas Appleseed is also part of a larger coalition in the Kansas Fair Maps Coalition. This podcast is brought to you in part thanks to our partners at Douglas County CASA, the Hall Center for the Humanities, KU Philosophy, and the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. You can find Lawrence Talks episodes on iTunes, Spotify, and online at lawrencetalks.org. With that, let's talk about maps. First, Caleb, to start us off, if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to take on the work that you uh, have going on with Kansas Appleseed. So I came to Kansas Appleseed in uh, February of 2019, so almost three years now. And my background was mostly in political engagement, you know, just running political campaigns, doing a lot of get out the vote efforts, just sort of things like that. Um, And Kansas Appleseed needed an inclusive campaign director, which is just what that's just what we call the campaign, but involves a lot of what is called integrated voter engagement, which is really just an approach to civic and uh, civic participation, I guess, that kind of goes beyond traditional get out the vote um, campaign things. Um, Although we do a lot of that, we do a lot to get out the vote, but we like to focus a lot more on, I guess, building power, building leadership, training people within their communities, um, just to sort of, you know, as a year round sort of program. Most people are used to doing civic engagement around a political campaign. That's maybe three months, six months. And we try to sort of build year round lasting engagement and build infrastructure. So that's kind of the background um, that we're sort of uh, bringing to our engagement here at Kansas Appleseed. And from your time in, in uh, the sort of uh, political engagement, you've been working on political campaigns. What have been some of your takeaways about uh, the whole campaign process and uh, just sort of the, the minutiae of what goes on in campaigns? What, what were some of your, your major takeaways? Well, some of my takeaways would include just how, I guess, unfair the process can be sometimes, you know, some, like I would work in communities or for a candidate or, you know, for whatever. And it'd be something that people really believed in or a candidate that folks really believed in. And, you know, they just couldn't get their message out or had more trouble getting their message out um, because of things like, you know, money. (laughs) Um, They just didn't have that sort of, you know, those cash reserves or, you know, access to money to, you know, just buy ads, to get out mailers, to, you know, even fund, you know, basic grassroots efforts of knocking on doors. Now, it would sometimes be frustrating because you would, you know, have somebody that you believe, or I would believe, you know, in a candidate or, or an issue. And I just know it was the right person <laughs> at the right time. But, you know, the, the community maybe wasn't ready for it. Maybe it was too progressive. Maybe it was too conservative, whatever. But, you know, just sometimes it's, it just didn't work out because people weren't ready to hear the message or, or whatever. So yeah, that's kind of, plus there's a lot of uh, legal 
issues and things like that and political campaigning. Right. So, um, you know, a lot of times people will be, I don't know, kicked off the ballot because they just didn't uh, follow the red tape as well. Um, so, you know, they forget, didn't get the right amount of signatures on their nomination petition or they were kicked off because, you know, some clerk decided that a signature didn't match exactly right. And, uh, you know, they didn't have time to fix it, fix it. So that's just, you know, a lot of sort of things that I would sort of see that would always just sort of frustrate me that, you know, I felt like people weren't being adequately represented, you know, just because of red tape government, um, you know, just people not being heard or listened to, or, you know, just apathy, I guess people voting in the same folks sometimes because there's not, a lot of information out there from organizations like Kansas Appleseed say. Um, so people just kind of vote for the same folks year after year sometimes. Do you find uh, the issue being that people just aren't coming out to hear some of the message or do you think there's some difficulty meeting people where they are? Because I know there's there's tons of going door to door and all that. And maybe people just kind of slam the door on you. But is that is that all that's available I think it's a little bit of both, right? I think that some of it is just, you know, candidates or campaigns or whatever, just failing to meet people where they are. They're, um, you know, not really listening to that, their communities, which is always a bad thing, right? And that's on, um, you know, the folks seeking office, right? They have to meet their communities and adequately communicate with them. But also there's a little bit of just, you know, folks aren't as engaged, you know, they're, um, they don't, know how to engage or they just kind of, uh, you know, they wait for a television commercial to decide how to vote, which, you know, people are busy, right? That's, that's what they have time to do, um, to have the communication sent to them. Um, you know, and they don't even necessarily know how to do things like go to a candidate forum, even, even that's a thing, or, you know, they just don't have time, you know, with kids and, you know, the school schedule, work schedule to take time out to, you know, go visit that. Or even just, you know, we're doing the work themselves, I guess, you know, Googling and trying to piece together information um, because it's just, you know, it's really, really hard to be doing that year after year, um, sometimes multiple times a year, if there's like a ballot initiative or something like that during a non-traditional campaign time. So it's just, it's it's a little bit, it's an all, all the above sort of problem where it just makes it just difficult for people, for everyone to sort of come to the table and to engage civically. And uh, sort of getting into the work of, of Kansas Appleseed more directly, the tagline or, or the sort of motto of, of Kansas Appleseed is justice for, for all. And so it's always interesting to me to, when talking to uh, organizations, uh, local organizations that do have as their sort of main uh, initiative, justice oriented work uh, is sort of what justice looks like for for them because like you know justice ideally right everyone has as their main end uh some sort of just end and so i'm always curious about what sort of principles or or maybe ways you go about in and uh, making sense of that word uh really great question and actually that's my uh background too a little bit my undergrad was in philosophy nice and i have a master's degree in philosophical theology, which is hmm. kind of a combination of comparative religion, philosophy, and um, a little bit of like, I guess, historical theology. So yeah, I always love uh, talking to a philosopher, um, <laughs> even though the questions are harder, right? Um, but yeah, justice, that that is sort of like a big, you know, that's a big ticket word. Um, and it kind of means what you want it to mean sometimes. But I think in the Kansas Appleseed, um, you know, sort of a vocabulary, 
justice for all, right? We're trying to make sure that people who are sort of historically underrepresented um, sort of have a seat at the table. <laughs> um, we like to make sure that um, minority groups, um, people with, you know, without means, um, just all the, the folks who just are left behind by government um, are able to not only have a seat at the table, but also to sort of have a voice at the table to sort of tell um, government, nonprofit agencies like Kansas Appleseed, what have you, other folks in their community, just, you know, this is what we sort of need. This is, these are the, the needs of our community. Um, and these are the problems that we think should be addressed. Um, a lot of sort of justice type organizations feel that they know what's best all the time. Um, they like to, you know, go to a community and sort of tell folks, you know, this is what we think you need. So this is what we're going to do. Mm. And we try to avoid that. We try to, you know, first listen, um, have a lot of meetings with communities, um, sort of our own little listening tour and just sort of, uh, you know, just get a sense of what the community thinks that they need. <laughs> and then we sort of act on that and help the community um, sort of address those issues. Um, kind of when I was talking a little bit about uh, integrated voter engagement philosophy, um, that's sort of a, that's a big part of it. We try to create that sustainable infrastructure by building leaders within the communities rather than, you know, leading a program, leading a campaign for a year, two years, maybe even three, and then just leaving. Um, you know, we try to sort of build leadership on the ground up. So this, this will, will this often uh, lead you to working with candidates on both sides or from, from both major political parties? Uh, well, sure. Um, you know, we are a nonpartisan organization. Um, just a, so we are pretty careful about uh, making sure that we try not to help any uh, one candidate, you know, win an election or help them uh, campaign. But yeah, we, uh, we put out information on nonpartisan races. So say like a school board race, right? That's a nonpartisan race. So we like to put out information equally um, to help folks who want to run for office who maybe wouldn't have the means or wouldn't have the know-how, would maybe be from one of those underrepresented communities and just sort of give them the information of, okay, you have this idea for your school district. Um, you know, this is how you would effectively communicate that, whether that be by getting yard signs, um, by going to forums and giving speeches, um, by, you know, doing social media messaging, whatever. Um, you know, that's kind of how we, you know, sort of uh, help those folks get the information out. And when we do um, more traditional engagement, say we uh, go to a town hall meeting with legislators or um, give testimony for legislation, we kind of have the same thought process. We first try to have community members go um, and give testimony and give their feedback um, based off what they've seen. And when we go ourselves, we try to give our testimony based off what the community has told the staff members at Kansas Appleseed. Okay. So just to kind of summarize your the definition that, that you've kind of laid out here for of justice, it's uh, broadly speaking, justice here is defined as one benefiting, finding ways that to uh, benefit or to lift up those persons or, or uh, voices that have not been heard uh, in the political process. Uh, and two, uh, justice and in in, uh, more concretely is going to be defined by the community uh, that you're assisting at a, at a given moment. Is that kind of a good sense of what, what you've said so far? 
Right. That seems that seems fair. Now getting to topic that we've we've uh, I guess I've reached out to you about and that is going to take up some or be part of the conversation, the public conversation, hopefully for some time or for the possibly a year or so is the fair maps, Kansas Appleseed's involvement and, and inclusion in the fair maps coalition. Um, so if you could, I guess, speak a little bit about that, uh, about the coalition and uh, the Kansas Appleseed's involvement. The coalition, the Kansas fair maps uh, coalition is essentially just a group of a uh, nonprofit um, nonpartisan organizations like Kansas Appleseed who essentially came together for this effort because we historically deal with, um, underrepresented groups um, fighting disenfranchisement, disenfranchisement, excuse me, and for just adequate representation of Kansans generally. So groups, um, just to name a few, um, like Mainstream Coalition, Loud Light, League of Women Voters with their uh, people-powered fair maps campaigns that they do pretty much year-round, um, or the African-American Affairs Commission. These are some of the organizations that kind of form this group. And we're um, essentially just all working together. It's a really a neat coalition um, so far because, you know, just coming from a background in politics, right? A lot of times there's a lot of ego <laughs> involved of people wanting to be the leaders, wanting to get that recognition of, you know, hey, I did this thing and, you know, we want to get credit for it. <laughs> um, but this sort of coalition, you know, I, I haven't seen that at all. People kind of fill in where, you know, the help is needed where they feel like they can be the most help. And folks have pretty much been going in the same direction. Um, so it's been a neat process to sort of watch. But yeah, we all kind of came together and just kind of went, um, you know, this really should be a fair uh, process. And there were some, um, we can kind of talk about that a little bit later, but there were some sort of signals that maybe this wouldn't be the most fair uh, process this go around. So we decided to all sort of pool our resources and know-how and uh, just try to engage to make sure that Kansans were represented. And, and keeping in line again with, you know, our, our brief conversation about, about justice and defining it, fairness is just one of those other words uh, that is also is equally uh, kind of uh, unclear about what we mean when we're, when we're talking about it. Right. Uh, ideally, again, people uh, in, and law and criminal justice are seeking justice uh, or seeking fairness in, in those activities. But it's not always entirely clear about what they mean by fairness or sometimes what they mean by fairness is actually uh, something very problematic. So in the case of redistricting and uh, creating fair maps, what does fairness mean uh, in this instance? Um, well, that's a really good question. And it is a pretty broad one. Um, so I think just to sort of sum it up, um, I would say something like, you know, we don't want the legislature choosing its voters. We want voters to be able to choose their legislators, which I mean, we're kind of jumping the gun a little bit there. But essentially what's going on during redistricting is the legislature every 10 years after every census in years ending with two in Kansas, um, they take the census data and they draw new maps um, for political districts. So, and that's from, you know, congressional districts um, down to uh, uh, state Senate, state house and um, uh, state school board districts. Essentially, you know, that, that leads to some sort of a uh, sort of sticky situations. You know, it's, it's pretty tempting for a legislature, which is, you know, almost by definition, uh, political and pretty partisan 
um, and its dealings to sort of decide, well, you know, I want to maybe, uh, you know, make this map a little bit more uh, friendly to you know, me, right. It could literally be them trying to make a district uh, for themselves a little bit easier. So maybe we expand this, uh, this, this district line, a a few blocks this way to capture some of my voters and sort of get rid of some of those voters that maybe I don't think would vote for me or if not for themselves, you know, their colleagues, their friends, you know, for other folks that they just, you know, just move in lines around to make it, to make sure that the right, you know, in their minds, the right folks are elected. And just kind of building off of that, you know, because we're talking about fairness, which is this hugely sort of broad term. um, One of the sort of principles during redistricting, Kansas legislature says it abides by is just making sure that communities of interest aren't broken apart um, to, to dilute power of voters, but, you know, what, what does that look like? Um, and they don't have to follow that. That's just a guideline that they can just decide to ignore, which, and communities of interest play a big part in the fairness sort of equation, which is why I bring it up now. So communities of interest are basically, I mean, they're really just communities, right? But they're just folks who, you know, live near each other, have similar economic interests, have similar, um, you know, organizations they belong to, similar places of work. They, you know, live, work, and play um, near and around each other, and they have the same interests. So, ideally, you wouldn't break these communities, these neighborhoods apart, because you know, somebody, you know, say in Pittsburgh, where I where I live, you know, they they might have a different take on. I don't know, taxes, right? Because they live in Pittsburgh and there's different sort of jobs down here. There's different sort of, uh, you know, infrastructure that needs addressed than say somebody who lives in Lawrence, who, um, you know, maybe has, you know, different sort of infrastructure ideas who work in sort of different industries. So it doesn't really make sense, um, you know, all the time to sort of, uh, you know, break people apart, um, you know, if, if they don't have to, or to, you know, lump them together. Um, so sort of a, a good example would be to say, take um, Wyandotte County and do put them in with say, Western Kansas, that'd probably be the best example. Um, and just sort of uh, loop them around the entire state. Southwestern Kansas looks really different than say, Kansas City Metro, right? That's probably like the most different you can look. Um, for any kind of district, congressional, you know, Senate, whatever, things can quickly begin to look a little bit weird if you um, have um, these Southwest Kansas communities voting with, uh, you know, Kansas City, sort of the northeastern part of the state with the southwestern part, um, just because we want to pass a map that doesn't necessarily reflect the actual voters uh, and the communities of interest, but the legislature wanted to get to a certain result. And how is that? So is that, uh, I imagine that determination is not made uh, using current districting lines. So is that, is that right? So you have to sort of, I guess I'm sort of curious how that works, uh, picking up on, on those sort of similarities between communities without using already using uh, the, the way that the districts are currently drawn up, if that makes sense. Right. Um, yeah, it, it can be difficult sometimes, um, but a lot of it is just sort of census data. Um, the census, there's a lot more than just counting, you know, residents. They also sort of collect, you know, economic data and other sort of information. 
Um, and so a lot of that is just sort of that information. And, you know, it can be sort of a difficult to define it sometimes. And sometimes it goes to court. Essentially, it's, it's, it's something the legislature has to do a lot, right? They have to do a lot of balancing tests and sort of weighing things together. You know, it's, it's not a huge standard to meet. Um, honestly, because typically, you know, you, you kind of know what a community is when you, when you look at it, um, you kind of know that, you know, okay, this is pretty similar. Um, all these folks are working at the same, uh, sort of, a industry. They should probably be together. Um, and they live in the same general part of the world. So yeah, they probably shouldn't break them apart or say, um, you know, breaking apart. Some of the other sort of standards are trying not to break apart counties, which also makes it both easier and harder because, you know, you have these sort of pre-made districts to sort of help build the, you know, these foundational blocks to sort of build these districts out. And so, and so part of, I guess, uh, in your response about the sort of things that we want to avoid in, in redistricting, uh, I guess you're, you're speaking about gerrymandering, right? The, this whole process, I, I, I imagine, again, sort of putting, putting our cynicism and our skepticism about um, the political process uh, to the side for the moment. And, and again, but that cynicism can be uh, well-deserved for, for many reasons. Both, I imagine both parties or both major parties uh, or those involved in this process want to avoid the charge of gerrymandering the districts. So what are some, uh, so you mentioned some of the general or broad principles that are supposed to define the process. Um, what else goes into you know, convincing the public that, hey, this the way we've drawn it up, uh, or this this proposal we have is not doesn't involve any gerrymandering. Right. So a lot of this process of just convincing folks that hey, we're not gerrymandering is just being as transparent as possible. When folks you know don't hear any information from their elected leaders, um, I think that sort of is a breeding ground for folks to just naturally assume. Now, something's going on that they don't want us to know about because people, you know, they are a little cynical and sometimes rightfully so if they're political leaders. Politics has uh, this reputation of, you know, being a little underhanded and a little, you know, shrouded in secrecy sometimes to get sort of deals by. And, you know, this is the process of legislation by itself. Um, you're writing laws. It can get technical. It's hard for the layman to understand it, um, which is why I think there's this even greater importance to make sure that, you know, just do this in the sunlight, make sure this is as simple and, you know, easy to understand as possible and to make sure that the people you're representing are as involved as possible. Um, so one of the things that the, the coalition did was last week, there was a series of town halls. So basically the legislature is supposed to get feedback, right, on um, the redistricting process uh, statewide. Uh, traditionally, there's about 14 cities where they sort of set up these town halls and the actual legislators on this committee that is tasked with writing these new maps physically go to these cities and have people give testimony and anybody can do it. Anybody in the town or the area can just email in their testimony or they can email in, you know, what they want the legislature to know as they write these maps and they can, you know, just sort of give a speech. Typically this process, um, just, you know, it's based off the past, right? This only happens every 10 years, um, but typically it's about four months, right? That's how long they took in 2010, uh, four months over the course of, you know, these 14 stops. 
Um, and there was lots of advance notice and everything like that. This go around, they announced the town halls, but I believe it was 6.15 on a Friday, which is sort of the traditional time to announce something through the press that you don't want people to know about um, Friday afternoon. Because, you know, the press, they have lives, they go home and they're not going to report to Monday um, and people aren't paying attention. So they announced it on six o'clock on a Friday. They gave about a week's worth of notice. Um, in fact, less because, you know, some of these, they had a, a 24 hour um, notice to give testimony. You had to give it 24 hours in advance. So, you know, some of these town halls were meeting on the next Monday and they had to submit the testimony by Sunday evening <laughs> by five o'clock, which is even more difficult. And they squeezed these 14 stops into one working week. So they were having three stops a day um, across the state for 75 minutes. Most of them were during the workday. I believe there were two um, that were um, in the evening hours um, after the traditional workday. So essentially, this did not encourage transparency. Um, people came to us afterwards and were like, what happened? That, that's already happened. They just announced it. I I just flickered across, you know, my screen once. I assumed I had a lot of time to get this together. I only had a few days um, where people would sort of email us back after we sort of get it, started getting the information out, saying things like, well, how come you only gave us a few days notice? Like, that's that's not fair. Why did you wait so long? And it's, well, that's when they announced it. That's That was sort of the, the process. It was tough just getting people out just to give that feedback and just to sort of tell um, their representatives, representatives Hey, we don't want you to, you know, we don't want you to gerrymander. We don't want you to sort of lump us in with, you know, these other um, cities that are, you know, across the state. Um, we want this to be a fair process. So that's sort of a the big thing that I would sort of encourage and encourage again and again and again is just make this as open as possible. And you mentioned that you so one big part of this process is the results that we get from the census. And and so what what's the connection between what we get from the census to drawing up uh, drawing up these lines? And if you could also speak about what what results we got from from the, the most recent uh, census uh, drawn in uh, 20, 2020. So the census is involved because essentially the districts are based almost 100 percent on the census data. Um, so the whole point of redistricting is to respond to the new census to, you know, make sure that, you know, one person, one vote is sort of being respected, that the various districts are, you know, have the right numbers of voters in them because, you know, people move, people, unfortunately, you know, they pass away, you know, areas get, they gain population, they lose population. And this is supposed to just sort of address that to make sure that, you know, everything is sort of fair. The problem with uh, addressing the census right now is that actually this, these town halls were going on almost entirely before the census data was even released. Um, the census data was actually released less than a week ago. Um, I think it was Thursday afternoon, um, which is a lot of information, right? You know, we really, it, it's, it's tough to really go through it yet. We haven't even had a chance to go through it. And these town halls were happening before anybody had a chance to look at it, you know, other than the census gatherers themselves. So again, a little bit by design, these town halls were happening before we could sort of know what was going on based on the census, which was sort of another lack of transparency sort of deal. And and the census is, the information is still being analyzed, right? Because we got the we got the raw data, yeah. um, and now we're now the process of of determining what that data entails for this process is being done 
currently. Right. In fact, just as we were uh, hopping on this call, um, one of the first uh, pieces of analysis was just announced that it was going to happen within the next few days. And they, you know, we're just now starting. So it's just so much information and it just takes a while to go through. So, yeah, it's 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 a big process that hopefully um, we're going to make sure that everything is uh, fair and actually represents Kansans. What are some uh, if you can answer this yet? Uh, what are some major some of the major takeaways from the census results that uh, Kansas should know about? I think the first, well, the first thing, of course, that we, we've known for a little while is that we haven't lost any congressional districts. Um, we've uh, grown a tiny bit. We've grown just enough um, to sort of stay steady. We've grown at a rate of about, I think it's 3% in the state, which means we don't get have to lose a congressional district. Other than that, um, essentially things are kind of what uh, people expected. Wichita area is more or less holding steady um, on the ends um, and in the middle of Wichita. Um, they're losing a little bit of population. We're gaining population in the Northeast, which we sort of expected. Right. And uh, we're losing it in sort of the rural areas, um, places like Western Kansas lost, I believe it was about one and a half percent population um, as rural areas get a little bit older and um, people move away to the cities. Um, Southeast Kansas, where I am, also lost a little bit of population, which was also expected. So from what we've seen so far, things have been pretty much as expected. Um, I'm not aware of any huge surprises, but, you know, we're still uh, going through that data. So given given the sort of change to the the rural areas compared to to the cities, is it pretty kind of set that those districts will probably have to be redrawn? You know, I don't know if I would go that far. Um, I mean, yeah, they'll have to be adjusted a little bit, um, you know, because there was a little bit of population change. But, you know, really not that much because the areas that lost some population um, and we're, again, we're talking about like a one percent change were, you know, very rural area. Those sort of lines would be moved. But honestly, I would say that from what I've seen, the districts that were sort of drawn in 2010 seem to more or less hold, um, you know, with minor adjustments, um, you know, just pushing boundaries back a little bit or, or adjusting. Um, I don't, I wouldn't say that any serious redrawing would have to happen based off the, the census results. Okay. Cause that, there was a question that, that I had on here that about, you know, whether Kansas, so there's any district in Kansas that could be said to be an instance of, of gerrymandering, but uh, it seems like so far, there's there's no real sort of obvious instance of of this so far, right? And I mean, yeah, because it's it's tough to say. Well, there's no gerrymandering in Kansas at all. I'm sure there is. <laughs> you know, I'm sure that there's um, a house district somewhere that is just not drawn fairly. But um, and this is why people are. This is why it's such an interesting situation this year or this decade, I guess, is that last go around um, after the 2010 census, the the current maps were actually not drawn by the legislature. They couldn't agree on maps. Um, they couldn't get it through the legislative process. So essentially the, the federal court, uh, the district court came in and drew the maps on June 7th um, of that year, which is you know, very late in the game. Obviously filing deadlines to run for office are actually June 1st. So they were just so okay. close to that deadline where they extended it to June 10th. And the courts kind of stepped in and drew it. And as far as, you know, as we're concerned, a lot of folks are concerned, it seemed to be, you know, more or less fair maps. They kind of 
took in all those uh, things into, into consideration that are supposed to like communities of interest, um, you know, like historical um, data and everything like that. And just, they just tried to draw it as far as they can from, you know, from our perspective, from most people's perspectives. So that's why a lot of folks are really intrigued um, this go around because a, a lot of politicians and, you know, places of power in the months and, you know, up to a year, maybe leading up to this process started openly saying things like, we're going to redraw these maps so that our party, you know, has more candidates, has more um, representatives. And it didn't look like things were going to get log jammed in the legislature this year, or it's going to be redrawn by a, by the court, which most people kind of seem to be the more fair outcome just because of the makeup of the legislature. It's, you know, it's not as divided as it was in 2010. It'll most likely, you know, we can't see the future, but it'll most likely pass as they draw these maps. And while there is a Democrat this time as a governor, that that Democrat can be overturned. Like if they veto the maps, the legislature can come through because the Republicans have a two thirds majority and they can overturn the governor who, you know, would just be sort of overturned and it would, would go through. So it's a it's just a more interesting sort of political atmosphere this time. Or maybe I guess you can argue less interesting in that, you know, it'll kind of happen as the legislature uh, uh, sees fit to do it. And assuming assuming that it does pass the legislature this time, the courts only step in if there's an appeal made. Is that correct? Not always. Um, this is kind of a unique deal. Um, the court, if they miss their uh, if, essentially if the legislature adjourns, which is what happened in 2010, without passing that map, um, without re- reaching that, I believe the court steps in, you know, of, of its own volition, which they can do sometimes. Um, sort of similar to uh, Kansas, a lot of times will they'll pass. Oh, gosh. Uh, uh, funding for schools. And I don't know if they need an appeal. So maybe this is a bad example. But, you know, there's other situations where the courts can kind of step in of their own volition and make a ruling. So I, I believe this is one of those cases. And, and if if map if they do pass a version of the map in the legislature, is it at that point when the there can only be an appeal? Or again, can the, can the courts? So okay. essentially the process is the legislature passes a, or, you know, draws a map, votes it out kind of like any other bill. The governor can veto or, you know, sign like any other bill. And then the executive essentially petitions the Kansas Supreme Court to approve or reject the maps, which based off my very, very quick reading is typically, you know, the Kansas Supreme Court typically approves of it um, because there's pretty low standards, right, for these maps to pass. Really, it's just the federal courts usually steps in if uh, they don't pass anything at all. Although there have been instances where folks have, you know, sort of filed a complaint, you know, this isn't fair or what have you. But those are typically not super effective. Essentially, Kansas or the the U.S. Supreme Court has stated that, you know, there's really no legal right to things like a politically non-gerrymandered district. So the Supreme Court really does this outright say, this is a political process and the legislature has every right to draw it how it wants, as long as it doesn't um, run afoul of, you know, one person, one vote, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, where they take into account, um, you know, racial gerrymandering. But, you know, they can, uh, if they want to do four Republicans or four Democrats, the legislature has every right to do that, according to the Supreme Court. That's always like one of my big takeaways or big, uh, you know, leave behinds, I guess, whenever I talk to a group of folks is, you know, don't wait 
for this to go to the courts. Don't think the courts will necessarily save us because, um, you know, if maps are drawn that we think are unfair, it's it's a tough road. It's almost impossible um, after they're passed to do anything about it for another 10 years. So now is the time to, to make sure that things happen. And I have one more sort of uh, maybe tough, critical question for you. And if say you're one in, uh, you're in one of these town halls and someone has a question about or worried about losing their preferred representative to even even if the process is fair, assuming it is fair, like say that they they just what they don't want for sure uh, is to lose their preferred representative. Uh, they don't want to make it harder for their preferred representative to win. Um, how do you how do you make that argument that like even if that were the case, this is still good. I mean, for me, that'd be a pretty easy argument. Um, Since we're nonpartisan, we're hoping just for communities to have the most fair representation. So I would argue that, well, yeah, um, you know, maybe you'll lose a candidate um, this time that you prefer, but that's a very short-sighted view of democracy. Um, And you want to make sure that your communities are voting your neighbors, your friends, your what have you, are voting in a in the most fair way possible. Because A, that encourages civic participation just down the road, which I think everybody wants. And also, you know, maybe um, things will flip by the by the the next go around. And maybe someone else is gonna want to make it harder <laughs> um, for your preferred candidate to get in. So you know, that's a little bit of a, you know, justice is fairness, a little bit of a philosophy thing. We're going into a veil of ignorance here, but you know, that's, I think that's a pretty good kind of way to look at it is you just want things to be fair. Even if in the short term you lose in the long term, not only do you win, but you know, your state wins. So wouldn't you rather have a fair democratic process than just having one or two candidates that you would prefer win um, for the next few years? That that's what I would prefer. You hope the answer is yes. You would hope, and you know, sometimes I think most people would say that they agree with that. Um, you know, lip service at least. Um, right. But you know, there might be one or two people who would just be very honest, be like, "Well, no, I don't care. I want to win right now." Um, you know, so you can always agree to disagree with uh, the, a few people on the fringes, but. I think fairness is a good principle to, to sort of fight for and to concede a little bit of political power for. As we wrap up our, our conversation here, Caleb, uh, what are some of the major uh, takeaways you would like our audience to take away from our conversation? And in answering that, too, could you also, I guess, say a little bit about what private citizens or citizens can do uh, during this whole process? I think some of the big takeaways um, I would sort of leave folks with is that this is an important process. It only happens, you know, once a decade. So don't let it pass you by. Um, 10 years is, it's quite a while to be able to sort of make your voice heard. And it's, it just lasts for a long, long time. Um, These districts, you know, even if it, even if we fix it in 10 years, if something goes wrong, the very fact that it was gerrymandered in the first place will make that harder, right? To go back and fix it in 10 years because we won't be able to, you know, vote in fair ways. So it's sort of, it's one of those things that just sort of lasts, it kind of projects itself into the future a little bit. Um, also, I just, I would tell folks to just sort of demand transparency whenever humanly possible. Um, 
it's in everyone's best interest um, that we do this in the daylight. We do this in ways that people understand and see as much as possible. Um, the legislature, in theory, um, doesn't want to be seen as, um, you know, being power hungry or doing something that's sort of, you know, disingenuous. So just speak up, make your voice heard. There's going to be opportunities for several months now to make sure that as many people um, know about this process, know about this, you know, hear about this process, know how to get involved as possible. For instance, most of this is going to be going on during the legislative process, which starts in January. So make sure you pay attention. Um, don't, um, you know, a lot of folks don't really understand how to get involved with that, but just, you know, do a little homework, reach out. There's a lot of organizations like Kansas Appleseed, like Loud Light, like Mainstream Coalition, who like, to, or League of Women Voters, who like to give out a lot of information about how to get engaged and how to follow along with what the legislature is doing. Or, um, you know, nonprofit um, sources of, of news, um, or even just, you know, regular newspapers. Just read along, make sure you know what's going on, and share on social media, tell your friends and neighbors, do, you know, write letters to the editor, just do everything you can to make sure that people hear what's going on, see what's going on. And, you know, they get involved because, you know, like I said, this is a once in a decade situation. It's a unique opportunity to get involved. That's one of the problems with this is that, um, you know, with campaigns, you know, there's one every year, one every two years. So people get really good at campaigning for office or issues. But this redistricting, once a decade, there's not a lot of sort of knowledge out there about how to engage in this process. So, you know, don't wait for um, your neighbor who's maybe an expert on this to come and, you know, kind of show you the way. You're going to have to be that expert um, pretty quickly. Um, so just kind of jump in and help out as soon as possible. Yeah, those are kind of my big picture takeaways. Just get involved, um, make sure you are informed as humanly possible and just tell as many people as humanly possible. We can't, you know, we can't allow um, this to kind of happen um, outside of the daylight. We have to make sure everyone hears about it. Well, with that, Caleb, I want to thank you again for coming on the show, uh, speaking about this issue and speaking about the sort of the process that lays ahead for both the legislature and for us as citizens uh, and making sure that we are fairly represented um, and that the, the lines are drawn as uh, as responsive to to the current makeup of, of Kansas as 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 it can be. Um, so, yeah, thank you again for being on the show. Thanks. Well, thank you all for listening and uh, we'll see you on the next episode of Lawrence Talks.